Welcome to Beyond Infinity, Piers Cunningham with you. And today I'm joined once again by lecturer in information systems at Torrens University, Dr. Ian Storey. G'day, Ian. Hi, Piers. Good to catch up. It is indeed. And, and also Guy West, who is a professional share market investor and international master in chess. Hello, Ian, and hello, Piers. We had a really great chat a couple of months ago where we touched on a few things which we wanted to take a bit further today. It was talking about risk. It was talking about the share markets around the world and, and how they they did so remarkably well despite the COVID pandemic and uh, the economic shocks that flowed from that. And we touched on Wall Street bets, which was creating groups that were taking on some of the big hedge funds on Wall Street. It was a really great conversation, so I'm, I'm glad to have both of you back on the line to talk a bit more and hopefully develop some of the themes that we talked about. I guess overall, today is a discussion about risk. Maybe starting with Ian as a mathematician, and then Guy, I'd like to ask you the same question. Why is it so important to understand risk, Ian? Having taught risk, it seems really obvious to me, and also I know that in a lot of philosophy courses, they talk about decision-making. So decision-making is really what guides businesses, governments, superpowers, and individuals, and, you know, animals. <laughs> you can see animals making decisions, machines make decisions. In fact, during the Second World War, there was a theorist who had the lovely name of Norbert Weiner. Now, there is a scientific-sounding name for you, and he, he invented cybernetics. And that was all about um, feedback. And his theories were used for guiding management, you know, in part during the Second World War in, in Britain. There are amazing experiments. If you look online, you'll see experiments, and myth the Mythbusters did a great one where they walked around in a paddock and they had to walk from one side of the paddock to the other in a straight line. And they had blinkers on and a headset on so no information was coming in and they just walked in circles. And you'll know yourself if you, you, know, you close your eyes, you, it's really hard to touch objects on the other side of the room. So this kind of theory about control and decision-making is really big in business. In fact, uh, one of the big areas now is big data and data analytics. And they're trying to develop what they call dashboards so that people can, just by looking at a, at a nice graphic, can get indications of the next, the next move to make in their business. So right. there's an ocean of, ocean of data out there like an absolutely huge amount of data. Businesses are able to glean from it all kinds of ways in which the market is moving or people are responding or whatever is happening and make really smart decisions. And businesses are actually getting advantages from mining that, that huge amount of data. Yep. So when it comes to decision-making, it's all about probability and the analysis of, of probability goes back to you know 17th century earlier when it comes to risk it's about two things 
So I teach my students risk equals likelihood times consequence. Now that's a vast, vast simplification. And that simplification can be made in the case of information security because by and large, information security risks or attacks are independent. You don't get a sudden rush of different kinds of attacks. Independence is defined really strictly in probability theory. And, well, basically it's defined as you multiply the probability of, of each risk and you get the final probability. But it's an assumption. And it's an assumption that applies in a lot of models used by researchers. So when they're doing linear models, it's generally hidden in the assumptions that the events are independent in this way, or they're trying to determine their dependence. <laughs> Usually, the kind of dependence they can find is really a, just a, it has to be a nice linear dependence for them to find it. Really, what they end up mostly saying is they're not dependent, they're somehow independent. So this thing of how things are independent is really, really complicated. Luckily, when I teach my students, I don't have to worry about it. I can just say risk equals likelihood times consequence. And we actually have a really, well, there, there are, and it's used in Australia a lot, a qualitative method. We just rate, we get the CEO to rate them or whoever, you know, someone from the information systems facility of a business we'll get them to rate low to high or even better, uh, green to red, you know, green, yellow, orange, red or whatever it is. And they'll rate the likelihood, they'll rate the consequence and then they'll, quote, multiply them, unquote, by putting it in a, uh, uh, a risk matrix, which is, you know, don't tell anybody, but they're actually doing multiplication. <laughs> so... Uh, so the mathematics frightens people. If you actually do it using mathematics, and I, I like doing it that way, I've taught it that way many times, mainly because the theory gets in when the students understand it properly. Mm. Really, in the end, they do a qualitative analysis. They usually get the ones at either end correct. So what I'm saying here is the risks that are really bad will correspond with risks that are really bad in a quantitative analysis and the risks that are really okay, low, will correspond with a low risk in a quantitative analysis. So the quantitative and qualitative will be similar and those ones in the middle, well, even the quantitative can be wrong because it's estimated, right? So I hope I'm making sense. I have taught this a gazillion times. Maybe I'm getting too close to it and my students have a lot more time to get used to it. But basically, because of the independence of the events, all of this is made very easy, and the qualitative approaches are very, very easy. But when it comes to risks in portfolios, and this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit, is they're dependent. And they're dependent in weird and wonderful ways. And they're dynamic. You know, most of the economic models in the world are static. So they talk about equi equilibrium. So 
So the, the kind of models they had in the Second World War, the kind of models even used, you know, the, from Palo Alto, all of those models are static and they don't take into account time. But there's been an economic theorist called Minsky and he's really thrown everybody into a tiz. Even Palo Alto have had to admit that they need to model time, believe it or not. I mean, how crazy. Steve Keane, who's an economist in Australia, says that most economists, are, you know, the let's call them equilibrium economists, ignore money because money is not a real element of the economy. You don't eat money, you don't wear it, you don't drive it, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm. <laughs> so so they, they ignore money and they ignore time and their models are really simple. Well, maybe that's okay when you're doing your models with rulers and pens and paper and stuff. But now with computer models available and more sophisticated uh, models available, they're starting to model time in these equations and starting to look at the dependence of events over time. And if you have a look at that wonderful graph of the South Sea um, what's it called? South Sea Stock? The South Sea that, Bubble. The South Sea Bubble. Isn't it wonderful, Guy? It's amazing. It's wonderful. So, it reminded me of some of my investing efforts. <laughs> <laughs> well, Newton got into it. We've talked about it before, but just to uh, go back over. Newton got into it when it was low, got out when it was smart, saw his friends still investing in it and, and made fun of him. He wasn't a nice guy. Then he <laughs> saw them making money and so he got in got in big <laughs> and then they've lost lost every you know got in just at the top basically or just just before the top and then lost everything down the other side mm. um, i wonder if um if we're going to be able to replace south sea with bitcoin at some point <laughs> yeah 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 um so uh minsky modeled this as four stages and he had smart money at the start so hedge finance, then speculation, smart speculation, and then it moves into Ponzi <laughs> when everybody's getting into it because it's going up. Mm. And then it hits uh, the Minsky moment. Mm. The Minsky moment is when it turns sour and it's going to crash. But um, I've seen that, the Minsky... That, that, um, that Ponzi phase... Is, is the interesting one. That's what I call the bigger fool phase, where people know that something's overvalued, but they believe that a bigger fool will take it off their hands and they'll make a profit. <laughs> oh, that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, because the way I, I would have described it, that's perfect because you know the people who are investing in it know that it's wrong, that it's not, not a good investment in reality. But because the bigger fool is coming in, oh, that's a really good way of putting it. Mm. So that's when it becomes Ponzi, is when you're in it because other people are in it. Mind you, there always will be bubbles where people really do believe it, Guy. I mean, I've heard people just before the crash in um, uh, the dot-com crash, just before GFC, you know, people make all sorts of wonderful, they get stars in their eyes. Definitely, definitely. And there are, there are a lot of signs that that's um, currently the case, I think, especially in the um, cryptocurrency markets where uh, I think 
a lot of the investors are ideologically driven, and so they, um, you know, on the one hand, there's the there's the investment criteria that they use, but on the other hand, there's a strong kind of emotional uh, aspect to it, where they they have a particular sort of vision for where they would like to see the world going. That gets sort of intertwined. Yeah, and that ties the, back uh, into Wall Street bets and stuff as well. Well, what what happens when there's a lot of people like that is that I've noticed that a lot of these, theoretically, they should reach the Ponzi stage, the Minsky moment, and then just crash all of a sudden. But they don't because of these people who really believe it. It's a rounded top. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. It doesn't just sort of go straight up and then straight down. It seems to be that the build-up is almost as long as the drop down. And there's over a trillion dollars American now in market cap in Bitcoin alone, and that doesn't include Ethereum and and all the other cryptos that exist as well. So $1 trillion is now being essentially bet on Bitcoin. It went up in the last week. It's gone up 8.3%, a 24-hour volume of $47 billion traded. Um, yeah, I think if if there's not um, a fair bit of the bigger full scenario happening, I would be very surprised. I, I think it's very clearly, yeah, it, there are some people who are in Bitcoin just because it's going up. Mm. Minsky has a wonderful phrase. When people ask me, how come Bitcoin has value? How could it possibly have value? And Minsky made, had this wonderful phrase, everyone can create money. The problem is to get it accepted. Yeah. And Bitcoin, Bitcoin has been accepted. It is a kind of money. But how and why it's being used, I mean, they talk about people using it to launder money. I'm sure that happened. Mm. Um, they're talking about people using it as a hedge against a coming crash. Apparently, 30% of the greenbacks yeah. that have been printed have been printed in the last year. I saw that in your notes, and that really is incredible, Ian. So does that mean that 30% of all the world's greenbacks that have ever existed have been created yes. in the last year? Yes. And, and yet we're being told that inflation is 2%. Yeah. And yeah. I just don't believe it. And I have talked with Guy previously. I'd like to know guys thinking on qualitative estimates of risk in portfolio management. Yeah, going back to the original question about risk, um, I mean, I, I come at the whole issue of risk from a, a quite different, you know, quite different direction than you do, Ian. In that, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a mathematician. So, for me, there's two areas of risk that are important in my life. One's just sort of, you know, general behavioural things like decisions about. Um, you know, should I ride my motorbike? And if I do decide to ride it, what sort of safety gear do I wear? Those kind of issues of, of risk. Um, is it a good idea to go parachuting or bungee jumping and those sort of things? And also, of course, the area of insurance. You know, should I insure my house and so on? So I'll come back to that in a minute. The other um, area of risk is, of course, in my investing. Now, 
unlike unlike the world that you inhabit, you know, in, in the lecture theatre. Unfortunately for me, I I don't have objective values that I can feed into equations. It, it, it's pretty much all dynamic. It's all subjective, and I'm I'm kind of winging it all the time as to as to how I assess the size of a risk. But obviously, the the equation is what what is the potential reward, and, and what is the potential downside, and and when you factor in everything, you know, is it worth taking? If, if you if you took that same decision over and over again, would you, in the long run, come out better or worse? So, in that respect, it's a bit like the equations you have for for gambling. For instance, if you play something like roulette, you can work out mathematically that you're you're playing at a, you know a two point seven percent disadvantage if you're playing on a single zero wheel, and so if you keep placing your money on any series of uh, roulette combinations, you're effectively conceding that 2.7% of whatever amount you bet, and over the long time, you know, that, that'll add up. So it, in something like the share market, uh, I'm continually asking myself, what's the downside? And usually, usually in a share market, the downside risk to the market in general is not more than, say... 70% or something like that. Um, that's a fairly extreme situation. Of course, in the great the great crash of 1929, I think the market lost about 90% of its value over a 10-year period. But it was it was a really dramatic fall. I would normally not take such an extreme view of the downside risk in the market. But of course, in any individual stock, the downside risk is always 100%. So if, if you if you go down to that sort of micro level of individual stock. You've always got to look at the um, potential downside risk of 100%. It may be very, very unlikely, for instance, in uh, cases like a stock like BHP or a a bank stock, which you think the government would um, decide is too big to fail. But ultimately, it is always a 100% downside risk. Then you look at the upside and the potential for profit. So in uh, in a solid blue chip, the you know the upside might be a few hundred percent, um, usually a lot less than that. Being realistic, in the penny stock, the upside could be thousands of percent, uh, and of course the downside risk is still just a hundred percent. However, the the chances of uh, of that downside That's risk of a hundred percent coming true is much larger. Yeah. So, I mean, it it is still a sort of a mathematical equation, but you are not given. You're not given the true values. You you don't know whether the stock you're buying is run by dishonest directors, and that the actual yeah. downside risk of 100 it is actually much higher. That you know the risk of losing all your money is much higher than you might have thought. In, in that area, uh, you are constantly having to juggle and assess a vast number of subjective factors, yeah. like you. Yeah. You research boards of directors and you go, look, on the balance of probability, you know, I've seen this woman or this man in a number of companies. They've, they've always, you know, done well. They've always put the interests of shareholders high on their agenda. So on the balance of probabilities, it's unlikely their personality will have, you know, suddenly changed. And so that will give you confidence. The management is good. 
then you have to look at the enterprise risk, like are they in an area which is inherently risky, like for instance oil drilling. You know, oil drillers might only get their sort of pay dirt uh, one time in ten, and the other the other nine might be dusters. You know, they they drill for oil and it they just hit um, water or you know something that isn't economic. So is that area and and so forth. And so you're, you're feeding all these factors into into an equation which really just sort of sits in your brain and percolates. Uh, after many years of doing it, you probably, I suppose, get to the point where um, you said you, you've been doing intuitive feelings. You said you've been doing it for 40 years. Yeah, that's right. And so um, after that amount of time, all, all these sort of past experiences all blend into what I suppose comes down to a sort of an intuitive feel that somewhere in the deep recesses of your mind, you remember a pattern from the past or you, or, yeah. or, or some little thing triggers a, a warning flag and you think, yeah, look, the risk here is higher than uh, what it might appear on the surface. Um, similarly, you sometimes get little twinges of, I've got a feeling that this stock, you know, is about to explode. There's something about the trading pattern, the announcements I've been putting out, or the behaviour of certain big investors in the stock. Like you, you might see it, it; it's consistently jumping a lot right at the end of trade, or you know, there's just something about it that alerts your spider senses and makes you think, I've got a feeling this one's about to go. So basically in my world, the assessment of risk is very subjective. It's a skill. It's more like, you know, trying to create a symphony than it is doing mathematical equations. You're, you're yeah, very but, much... But it's, uh, it's the same thing. You're you're dealing with risk, really. Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah, so you're, yeah. you're trying to minimise risk. You'll, you'll suffer a little bit of a hit in the profit to reduce the risk yeah and, and vice versa and, i mean I, yeah, i'm not always trying yeah. to minimize risk i, I might i might be willing to well for some stock risk, it, yeah then i'm trying to maximize profit so yeah yeah i mean the, what the theory I, is that with with every stock i buy I, I want to think that if i did the same thing a hundred times you know would would i right. would i come that's out right. ahead uh now yeah, of course, you can um you can take them risk. unique you can take risk where you've got a 50 percent chance of losing and if the payout is positive and you put them all together, then the, you're almost certain to make a good amount of money out of it. Absolutely correct. And this yeah, is what so I tell my students when we talk about about risk as well. I've only been interested in the stock market because I've got um, super. <laughs> so it's down to Hawke and, and Keating who forced me to be interested in it, really. Yeah, by introducing <laughs> have, Super, yeah, back in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. So, I have, and I'm also interested in other things like betting on horses and games and theory. I teach risk as well. So I did some models trying to spread risk for stock, just, you know, on the back of a piece of sheet of paper. Well, actually, in my computer. And I found that if they were, uh, if they had a correlation of about 20%, it was incredibly hard to spread the risk. So that, that thing of, you know, if you do it 100 times, you're almost certain to, to win, is really heavily held back by the fact that when stock go up, they all go up at the same time, and when they drop, they all go down at the same time. Yeah, very good point. The numbers shocked me. It only... It was really hard to do. 
if there was something that was going in the other direction, it could pull it up enormously. In fact, you could almost get to a point where, like the short guy, and I'm not talking about doing shorting, but the short guys can make their own luck out of this by betting both sides and equaling it out at the end, right? That's the shorting. But where my inspiration, where where my flash, flash of genius came from, if I do say so myself, was the idea that over time, there are counter movements. People will invest in gold as a hedge. And people are trying to invest in Bitcoin as a hedge. I know the guy, um, uh, Kaiser, the Kaiser Report, do you know him? Yeah, um, rings the bell. Yes. <laughs> they talk about using Bitcoin and gold and silver as a hedge against the possibility of a crash. And you hear stories about like the Weimar Republic and you hear stories about the greenback and how American industry pretty much has been totally hollowed out and everything's going to China. And you really start to worry. I've started to worry about my super. (laughs) I think I talked to you at length, Guy, about how to invest in gold. Yes. My thinking there was my super fund is doing pretty well. I think it's the best performing in the country. And I I do chew my fingernails worrying that they're being attacked by hedge hedge funds and that sort of thing. (laughs) And, And maybe I should be adventurous and set out on sailing the seas of managing my own stock portfolio. I don't know how how you don't have white hair and <laughs> manage to stay so calm doing that, Guy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's my background in tournament chess where uh, on every single move, disaster is waiting to strike. Around the as, as, as one um, famous grandmaster said, the blunders are all there on the chessboard waiting to be made. You can actually bet on both directions if you consider time as part of the effect. So you might even not come out having more money, but because you've got gold and the greenback has gone down, you've got more value. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, So you can end up with your money dropping, but everybody else's value drops, their money value drops so quickly that you can end up at... At a you know at the top, so I think it's worth putting like twenty or thirty percent into that hedge. You touched we- on a on a really important point, which is the relativity of all these things. People often say that gold and silver are going up, but you could equally well say that the U.S. dollar, which is how we value them, is going down. It's all just relativity. Yeah. yeah similarly, yeah. Um, you might say that the the value of um, rare artworks or pre, pre-World pre War One Rolls Royces is going up, but who's to say that the value of money isn't just going down? One of the reasons that Bitcoin is seen perhaps as a hedge is because of the possibility of inflation being higher than is officially acknowledged. Um, yeah. and, and if you're... If your flight from assets that are perhaps overpriced or heading for a crash, if your your retreat or your the exit door is to go to cash... Then, if, if cash is the exit, and yet you've got inflation that's higher than you think it is, 
perhaps you you know you would look at a digital currency like like Bitcoin. You know, you could argue that Bitcoin, the exuberance and that very high prices seen in Bitcoin, is another symptom of the fear and the the lack of security out there that people feel. And I think that's a very palpable thing that's affecting lots of markets all around the world. People know that there's a lot of volatility, that there's a lot of fragility. Thank you very much, Ian and Guy. Dr. Ian Story, lecturer in information systems at Torrens University and Guy West, professional share market investor and international master in chess. 